You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Interstate Batteries. Interstate Batteries has been a proud supporter of the Sportsman's Nation since day one. So if you're looking for any type of batteries, whether it's for your truck, your car, your trail cameras, your rangefinder, stop into a local Interstate Batteries retail location. There are thousands upon thousands of them all over the United States. Talk with a battery specialist and get the batteries that you need to go on with your life. Interstate Batteries outrageously dependable all right so today's podcast is going to be a hunt breakdown and it's going to be my own hunt breakdown of this uh, wisconsin buck that i just killed so real quick before we jump into the actual story we'll get through uh, a quick ad and then dive right in as most of you know i've been using onyx for several years for e-scouting and waypoint management in the field or at home i can browse aerials and topos map my routes draw lines and waypoints color code points of interest, geotag photos of rubs, or even what a specific tree I intend on hunting looks like, so that I can find it in the dark, say for example. Furthermore, I can download maps for offline use, and of course browse public and private land boundaries. Use the code DIY for a discount on an Onyx Hunt membership. Alright, so let's lay down some of the groundwork for this hunt. Of course, it's Wisconsin and the area of the state, it's kind of, uh, I guess you could kind of call it northern Wisconsin, it's not like the far, far north where you got the wolves and, and everything like that when there's no ag at all. Uh, it's kind of, you know, other than the fact that there is some private ag around, it's mostly big woods type of habitat. Uh, so basically the rolling hills, the little swamps here and there, and then the hardwoods are primarily, you know, aspens, maples, basswood, oak, that type of thing. Logging is fairly prevalent in these types of areas. So that just kind of gives you an idea of some of the habitat um, between the various types of public land in this area of the state. I mean, there's lots of different types and there's lots of really large uh, acreage blocks. So really pretty much as much habitat as you'd want to roam around in, you have access to. And I've scouted this place several times in the past over the last couple of years. I actually haven't even really hunted it that much until this year. This is really the first year that I've I've hunted it, although I've uh, definitely had some high expectations and high hopes for it just based off of some of the scouting that I had done in the past. And in tackling this, you know, of course I had my strategies and things like that based on how I scouted it. But then I've also definitely taken some little tidbits and approaches from guys like Paul, who I had on the podcast last week, uh, or guys like Andre DeQuisto talking about how when he used to hunt the Nicolay National Forest, how he would kind of tackle that type of land. I've been trying to take little bits and pieces uh, from guys who have been successful in big woods types of areas and trying to apply it as much as possible to this season. And really, 
I'll get into this, but I think it's one of the major reasons I ended up killing this buck, uh, because it was an extremely mobile, even for me, an extremely mobile hunt uh, on that given day where I, I shot him. Now here in Wisconsin, it's been pretty much just like everywhere else in the Midwest, where it's just been extremely hot, well above average, you know, probably even close to record highs. I'd have to imagine for early November. And that has really taken a toll on the daytime running activity. Certainly there's still some deer cruising, but it seems like, you know, even on the kind of the trail cameras that I've been monitoring, it's been mostly nighttime movement. I'd say maybe like, you know, 70 to 80% bucks uh, cruising by under the cover of darkness. And then the rest of them are just, you know, at any given time throughout the day, midday, early morning, you know, in the afternoon, evening, just kind of a, a mixture all throughout, but definitely more shifted towards nighttime activity than daytime. And of course, I think definitely the weather has a role in that. And what's also interesting is that I wasn't even planning on being in Wisconsin for these last few days that I've been hunting it. If you guys remember from some of my earlier podcasts, I had planned on going out to South Dakota for a rut trip and, you know, kind of mistake on me here. I went and did all this research for this hunt in South Dakota, uh, you know, went and looked on Onyx for all the, the public lands I wanted to check out looked at different layers, looked at some of the Boone and Crockett and Pope and Young history, just to get an idea for, you know, what kind of genetics might be in the, uh, the particular areas. Also looked at the type of habitat, how much public land there was, just really did a whole bunch of e-scouting and research for that particular hunt. And then of course I looked at the season dates. I made sure that, you know, on the east side of the Missouri river, it had a November 21st rifle date. And on the west side, it was November 14th. And so I'm thinking, okay, the weather's going to be, you know, still not great there. It's still going to be really hot. I think it was close to 80 when we were planning on driving out there. But the second day it was supposed to basically transition into more of a cold front. And then for the, you know, day three and four, it would be pretty ideal weather. And so we get out there left, you know, basically in the middle of the night to try and get there as early as we could on Saturday morning. And we pull up and, you know, it's probably about mid morning ish. And there's a lot of trucks driving around on some of the public lands, just, you know, going through the back roads and stuff. And just about everybody's got orange on and I'm thinking, man, you know, I guess South Dakota is kind of known for a lot of pheasant hunting and eventually got to this one area that I really wanted to check out. And there was like four vehicles parked there and, you know, a bunch of guys staying in orange, just kind of, um, you know, standing around talking. And I, I got up closer to them and, you know, they had rifles all over the place. I'm thinking, okay, well, this is, this is odd. Uh, so I pulled up and started talking to one of the guys and asked them what they're hunting. And of course, it, as it turns out, uh, the area that I had done all my e-scouting and everything for and wanted to do this uh, South Dakota rut trip in, it's the only county in the entire state of South Dakota that has an early rifle season. And the reason I didn't find it when I was doing my research is that the only place that it was ever published or advertised is when you look on the, um, basically on the, the website for the DNR for your applications for rifle. It talks about, you know, here's your applications for these dates with the exception of this one County. And if you guys are hunting in South Dakota, you probably know what I'm talking about. You probably know where I was planning on going. Um, but essentially if you look at, you know, the key dates for the state, you know, it's not listed anywhere. You basically had to, you know, kind of already know about it or look at it specifically under the rifle type of regs, uh, to be able to realize this. So, you know, oversight on my, my part mistake, probably should have known about it, but I'm left with this dilemma now where, 
all of this public land that I had been looking at in this county and had e-scouted had vehicles all morning driving around. It's like, you know, close to 80 degrees. And I'm thinking, okay, can either number one, stick it out, try to use some of this hunting pressure to my advantage, get down into some of these big drainages and real thick cover and just try and hunt some of the big security cover and, you know, escape routes and things like that. Number two, it's only this County, right? So I can go to a different County potentially and still pick out some public land there and hunt just fine. So I started looking at the maps in different counties and, you know, there's other pieces of public around certainly, but a lot of them you do just kind of a quick once over on the map and find maybe, you know, one, two, maybe three, you know, best pinch points, um, in terms of rut travel movements. And, you know, it was like an hour, hour and a half, two hours to get to some of these places just to kind of get to them and verify if they'd be okay. And then if they weren't going to be okay, it was kind of like a wasted trip potentially because you'd have to drive another hour and a half to get to the next piece. It was kind of scattered throughout. And the initial place was the place that really had just kind of that big, you know, mixture of a whole bunch of large acreage public. So it was either do option one, option two, or option three was to drive back to Wisconsin, which I knew it was hot. I got, you know, the cameras running and we had just left Wisconsin. We were getting on deer, you know, it was definitely past the point where the scrape activity was starting to wind down. We're starting to get a lot of cruising movement and we knew where there was does. We knew where there was bucks moving. And so Sam and I, we, we just eventually made the decision. Let's drive back to Wisconsin. So we had just driven all the way out to South Dakota from the twin cities. And then we just turned around and drove all the way straight back. Um, and then basically got almost no sleep that night because we had to wake up to drive over to Wisconsin, uh, to hunt the next morning. Um, and basically when we got there, we were saying, okay, let's hunt together instead of hunting separate. Let's, uh, me film Sam for the first morning, because if we each hunt separately, we double our odds of seeing, you know, deer because we're hunting different stuff, but then we're both kind of filming ourselves. I'm doing, you know, the best I can trying to self film Sam when she's filming, it's essentially just, you know, wearing a head cam and, I figured, okay, well, you know, we're going to have a few days here. It's going to be hot to start off with. And then the weather is going to get cooler and we'll have still a few more days that, you know, within my PTO that I can get some good rut movement. So, okay, we'll film Sam. Hopefully she'll shoot a deer. If not, you know, we'll just keep filming her and keep hunting with Sam and hopefully she shoots one and, and then we can switch over and it'll be my turn. Essentially that first morning we did sleep in a little bit and got there just a little bit after sunrise and got into the, the wooded area where we wanted to, uh, go in and hang a, a stand or hang our saddle platforms in this tree. And probably it was about 45 minutes after light and we're just about to climb the tree. There's a, a few little bits of deadfall around it and we can hear footsteps coming up from the other side of this fallen tree. So like Sam, Sam get ready. Um, cause this deer's coming in hot. And she knocked an arrow quick, you know, got her bow ready. And then we could just see, I could see movement. I could see the deer's face, you know, kind of screening through the branches on this fallen tree. Don't move. Right. And then Sam, you know, kind of lowered herself down a little bit. And I think the deer saw some movement, but he didn't really seem too phased about it at first. He started to continue to move around this fallen tree. And 
he looked like he was just going to be able to pass right by it and give Sam basically like a, you know, 10-yard shot on the ground broadside. He would move a little bit and stop, kind of look around, move a little bit, stop, look around. And then while he's doing this, Sam's still a full draw. And uh, eventually she, you know, just couldn't hold it anymore. She was, it was several minutes and she had to let down. And when she let down real quick, I think the buck heard or, or saw something. And then he started to get a little bit more nervous. And he, gosh, he came so close to just clearing the last little bit that he needed to clear in order to give her another shot opportunity and just never quite made it there. Um, and he started kind of veering off and we made a last, last ditch effort to try and, you know, basically step out from behind the fallen tree and, and get a shot opportunity. And, and that was the last draw for him. And he took off, uh, and spooked out of there, but definitely an exciting, uh, I'll, I'll a little bit frustrating, uh, experience to have really close call like that. We ended up getting up in the tree anyway, cause it was in a really good, um, pinch point between, you know, kind of a waterway and some, you know, thick deadfall area where these bucks were definitely moving. There's a lot of sign, a lot of rubs. There's a lot of scrapes in there and definitely some tracks that were all very fresh. And obviously we saw that deer moving through. So the first hour on stand felt really good. And then it just started getting warmer and warmer and warmer. And the day winds really started picking up. And I think they were like 15 miles an hour maybe on that day. Uh, so it was definitely, definitely not feeling like the type of November rut sit that you would expect to see deer movement on. It really just felt like it was going to be one of those days where you're going to sit all day, get whipped around in the tree and not really see a whole lot. So mid morning, we discussed our options. We could either sit there and just hope that something else moves through or option number two is we could get down and start moving around and covering some more ground. We're thinking, okay, number one, the weather's bad today for daytime movement. It's probably going to get better with this upcoming cold front. The, the Spartan Forge app, we're looking at that. It said average activity for this particular day, but then the next day onward essentially was high activity. So it's like, you know, we really probably aren't, you know, hurting a whole lot if we do get down today and start moving around. Worst case scenario, we don't see anything. Best case scenario, we kick some deer up and we get, you know, potentially even a hot doe that gets kicked up and we, you know, can find a location where maybe there's some bucks that are kind of congregated and that area might be hot for the next couple of days. So that's what we decided to do. We ended up just getting down out of the tree, packing the stuff up and going back, uh, kind of closer toward the vehicle a little bit and dropping the packs off at just a location that was going to be someplace where we knew we were going to be able to come back to just to lighten the loads a little bit. So we started walking, scouting, still hunting, essentially with just our bows and the camera. And now at this point too, it's, it's kind of, you know, whoever gets the opportunity would be able to get the shot. We, you know, we have the camcorder, we have one camcorder, we each holding the bow, we each got tags and Sam's basically going to shoot whatever buck she gets a shot at. You know, there's a lot of, you know, nice basket rack size, you know, eight pointers in this area that she'd be more than happy to shoot that first buck that came by would have been a great representation, uh, a great first buck to be able to, to take. Uh, so definitely she's going to be able to have an opportunity. I think, you know, if we come up on a deer and then for me, uh, I had a little bit more picky standards and just kind of having a rough inventory from the trail cameras we've had out there. There's one buck I knew that was quite large, um, ended up being the buck that I shot. And then there was a couple other ones that I figured, 
you know, they weren't quite as big, but I definitely would have still shot them anyway. And so we were kind of discussing amongst ourselves, you know, if we do happen to see a deer, we'll just have to play it by ear. And, and, you know, if it's a big one, maybe I shoot it. If it's a, anything else, Sam will try and get a shot. Whoever's got the camcorder, try to film. Otherwise, you know, we'll try and film with a cell phone and just kind of working on a fly like that. It's, it's kind of, um, an odd scenario to try and work through and you each have tags and you're trying to film and then you're also trying to film. Uh, so we're just kind of trying to be as adaptable as we could. But essentially for the trail camera inventory that we did have, what I knew about the biggest, um, the biggest year back there was that he wasn't on the cameras often. He'd be on there every now and then. And when he was, he was almost always at night and there was never a, a directionality that I could kind of pinpoint and say, okay, well, he's probably betting this way. It'd be like one night he would show up coming from, you know, one direction, uh, coming towards a scrape. And then like three nights later, he'd come back through, but he'd be coming from the opposite direction at night. So it was really hard to kind of look at just the data there and be able to pinpoint which direction he was going. But based on some of the other scouting that we had done, I kind of had some ideas of where to look and also just look at the map too. The weekend prior, I had done some, uh, still hunting through an area and found a really big set of tracks, a couple big rubs and a few ridges over. And so that was kind of in my mind thinking, okay, like he could be spending a lot of time in this area too, or it could just be another one of his, you know, routes that he's running, scent checking for does late October, early November. Uh, and it might all just be a nighttime activity, just like where we had the cameras. So we decided we got this, you know, southerly wind direction. Let's go further north than we've scouted further north that we've hunted before and just basically pick a spot and just zigzag uh, west and east and then generally moving south so the plan was to look at little things like beaver ponds and, and swamps and things like that ridges and just kind of pick edges along each of those types of things and just move one direction until we get to a good spot to kind of cross back over and then head east and then move south a little bit, move west and just kind of zigzagging through. And we had been doing this strategy and, and finding a decent amount of deer sign in some of these newer areas and even some bigger deer sign. We walked around one little pond and on the back side of this pond, there's a fallen over uh, some type of evergreen tree. It must have been a spruce. And on the back side of this thing, there was this big bed. I was like, okay, well, you know, the beds in this type of area are kind of all over the place, really. You find beds like that. You find other beds that are on the edges of swamps. You find other beds that are on hillsides. They might be against the log. You find some beds that are, you know, just kind of random. And you're thinking, how can a deer bed here? You find some beds that are on you know, ridge tops that are in clear cuts. So it's just kind of a mix of everything. And it hasn't really been as easy to identify and pinpoint, especially looking at a map, like you could with say like a cattail marsh, you can be pretty spot on in choosing your bedding areas. Uh, but not so out here. It's been more, you, you just find them and mark them when you, when you do, but we found this bed and kept skirting around the edge of that pond and then found a couple more big rubs. And when I, I'm talking, you know, size of my thigh and at least, you know, probably mid chest and height with shavings of the bark, just laying right on top of the leaves. So it seems fairly fresh. And there's a couple of them in this general vicinity. 
And so we just kept following this thing up and adjacent to that pond, there was a ridge. We started walking up the ridge and it's pretty thick, high stem count, but there's just enough of a trail for us to get through and maybe just enough of a trail for a deer with, you know, a decent rack to walk through. We work up this thing slowly. Again, it's really windy, so we're not making a lot of noise. I guess we should say we, we have the ability to get away with a lot more noise because of just the ambient noise of the trees, you know, shaking around. So we work our way up this ridge and it starts to open up a little bit more. We find a scrape. We can, you know, see the tracks and the trail and the leaves strewn up on this trail to let us know that it's somewhat fresh and there's, you know, still deadfall and things like that. So it's, it's still thick. It's just not, you, you lost some of this high stem count stuff that we were kind of bushwhacking through. And I could see off to the side of this ridge, I could see legs moving through the timber and then I caught antlers and it was a buck just moving, basically paralleling up to the side of this little ridge. And it seemed like a pretty decent buck, not the one I ended up shooting, but we tried to see if we could grunt at him, get him to stop, get him to come our way. I knew he didn't see us and he didn't smell us. The wind was, you know, kind of in our favor at this point for this particular deer. And I'm thinking, okay, if we grunt at him a little bit, you know, maybe kick up some leaves, like we're starting to scrape, then maybe he'll have some adrenaline and, you know, come up and uh, give a shot opportunity. Cause he's, he's already probably in shooting range. It's just too thick. There's too much stuff in the way. And I couldn't quite see him at the, again at this point. And he kind of lost him in the, the thickness. And so I started moving toward him a little bit. Again, grunting, acting like I was, you know, a rival buck potentially. And, you know, kind of poked around to see if I could, you know, lay eyes on him again. And I couldn't. So then I started going up the ridge a little bit as if I were going to uh, try and cut him off. And again, started peeking through and I couldn't see him at all. So thinking, okay, well, he must've just been in that zombie mode walk and just kept on going. It was probably two minutes at this point after I had visually seen him. So he could have been, you know, several hundred yards of the ridge by that point. So it's like, okay, well, this is the best sign we've seen. You know, we got big buck sign. We just saw a buck and it's, you know, probably two in the afternoon. So this is as good as anything we've seen so far in the day you know, we might as well just sit right here. Essentially was kind of the thought. And Sam was like, well, you know, we could look up a little bit higher in the ridge too, to see what that looks like, because there's not really a pinch point here. I'm like, yeah, there really isn't a pinch point here, but we do, you know, for all we know, a doe might've walked right through this path. And that was just one buck that was following her. There could be others, but you know, let's check up a little bit higher on the ridge anyway. So that's what we did. And we get to this little clearing on the ridge side. That's, I don't know, maybe 30, 40 acres or 30, 40 yards across. And there's a, a big oak tree, which the shade of which probably helps to allow it to be more open when you get that big canopy. Uh, whereas everything around it is a little bit thicker, higher stem count, smaller trees. And there's this middle sized tree laying out in this open area that has just a giant, I would say car hood scrape, but it's more like the size of a car, uh, just very large scrape overall. It's got fresh tracks in it. And the scrapes for the most part, aren't getting hit as heavy right now as they were say like a week ago or two weeks ago, but the deer are definitely still hitting them somewhat. So there's a log that's laying on this ridge side that has the root ball basically facing downhill. And then the fallen tree faces uphill. So the root ball is pretty sizable and you can sit on the log and then have the root ball in front of you for cover as you're facing downhill. 
we walked over to the log and I'm thinking, okay, well, if I sit on the log, then we got this root ball's front cover and either one of us sitting side by side on this log could potentially get a shot opportunity if another deer was to do the same thing that that first deer did and walk right up this ridge, uh, potentially, you know, toward this scrape. But even if they didn't hit the scrape, there was still a pretty solid trail and just travel corridor coming up the spine of that ridge. So that's what we ended up doing. And we got all set up. We had the camcorder sitting in between us. Each of us had an arrow knocked. And it was just kind of like, you know, well, if, if a big one shows up, I'll grab my bow and you can grab the camera. And if anything else shows up, you know, it'll be the opposite. I'll grab the camera and you try and get a shot. It wasn't five minutes after we had gotten all settled in that I could see movement coming up that ridge. Look, like it was coming up the exact same trail as that first buck. And immediately I could tell it was, you know, pretty sizable deer. It was like, Sam, big buck you know, grab my bow. Um, and I could, he's coming up the ridge and if he just keeps on coming the way he's coming, he's going to eventually get to that scrape, which is like less than 20 yards away and give a broadside, broadside shot. But as soon as he clears that root ball, mostly my movement's not going to be covered anymore. So I want to be at full draw basically as soon as I can. So as he's, you know, roughly 30 ish yards away coming uphill, I come back to full draw he doesn't see me move at all. Sam grabs the camcorder, starts filming, and he keeps working up a little bit, you know, like a step at a time. He starts looking around, puts his head back down, takes a couple more steps, starts sniffing around, and he kind of slows down and, and just, you can tell he, he's really, he's really intently trying to smell and, and the wind is coming right down the spine of this ridge. So if you were to draw a line for where the, our scent cone, you know, should have been, it would be like just past him. You know, like if we get a little bit of a swirl, he's basically got us busted. It's, it's that close to an off wind, essentially. He's got the wind in his favor coming up the spine of this ridge. And so he stands there for at least a minute. Uh, we'll have to check the footage to see, you know, exactly how long I was at full draw. But he's about 20 yards at this point and very strong quartering too. And I've been at full draw long enough that I'm starting to get pretty tired. And he's still looking, you know, he's, he's, he's still smelling. He, he looks at Sam a couple times pretty intently and, and she's not as, uh, she's not in as good of cover as I am. I got this root ball that's got pretty good front cover for me, but she's kind of the side of me. So her outline, you know, head and shoulders and everything is, is a little bit more exposed and she's got this black camcorder, you know, sunlight could be glinting off of it. You can just tell that this deer is now, he definitely knows that something is not quite right. He just doesn't know quite what it is. And he starts to do that thing that deer will do when they're getting ready to, to turn around and run. You know, he started moving his back leg a little bit. He started doing that whole thing. And I knew it was kind of one of those now or never types of things. He had his chest, basically facing right at us. And it was just, his body was slightly quartering too. Uh, but in the moment when I was at full draw, looking through my peep and looking at the deer, it seemed like he was more just dead, you know, head on facing us than he actually was. Um, and so given that we're on the ground, given that he was pretty close, right. You know, 20 yards at, at most, I felt comfortable taking a, a frontal shot there. And so I basically just, you know, held, you know, center between the legs and about at the, you know, height of the top of the heart 
and touched off the arrow and it, it impacted almost exactly where I was aiming. Almost looked like it was dead center between the legs. Uh, you know, the knock buried, passed through, and he took one bound and he was he had disappeared into the cover. And we tried listening to see if we could hear him crash. Couldn't hear anything, but again, the wind blowing the trees around was you know pretty loud, so you couldn't really hear much regardless. And we played the footage back, and that was kind of when my heart sank a little bit because... Once I replayed the footage, I realized how much he actually was still quartering and not just directly head on. And the amount that he was quartering, you'd be able to see this in the video, was enough that I was really worried that I only got one lung. Uh, you know, if, if I would have had this deer directly head on, it would have been right down the center of the boiler room, probably would have passed through the whole length of the deer. Uh, but it looks like I probably, you know, entered mid chest and probably exited like forward of mid body on the other side. So I'm just thinking at this point, I got my fingers crossed and I'm hoping that number one, you know, there's a lot of really large, high pressure blood vessels in the, the front of the chest, in the front of the neck. I'm hoping that I hit one of those. I'm hoping I hit the heart. Either one of those are pretty reasonable possibilities based on impacting there. Um, it was just a lot lower likelihood that I got both lungs and it was a lot lower likelihood that I got, you know, intestines or guts or liver or something like that called Shane asked him what his thoughts were and he you know basically said we got to give him an hour at least uh, and then you know we kind of talked through the different options of of what you know it might have hit and also what to do once I start you know doing that tracking at after an hour and it was basically you know if you, you know, best case scenario the deer's dead and he has been dead already Worst case scenario is if you just got the one lung, you know, then we'll be able to hopefully see the deer as he gets up and, and moves off. And, and that would be a potential, you know, much lower chance of recovery type of a scenario. And we, you know, would probably bring the dog out in that case and, and track him. Sam and I walked over to the site of the impact to check for the arrow and check for blood. And this is when my spirits start to raise a little bit because there was bright red bubbly blood absolutely everywhere uh, just like you might expect and you've probably seen on youtube videos with some of those frontal shots and elk and things like that there's a very high likelihood that you hit one of those high pressure arteries in the front of the chest and that's definitely what it looked like because it looked like somebody just took a a paint can and just kind of swung it in the same direction that he spun off to start running and that basically gave us the confidence to, you know, start moving forward on the blood trail. We still gave him the hour, even though we knew that it looked really promising at that point. We gave him the hour. We started following it. We were really cautious and conservative following the blood trail because if it wasn't as good of a hit as it now seemed like it probably was, we wanted to be able to read his body language when he got up to just to see, you know, if he was hurting, if he looked like he was doing fine. And we got about 50 yards down the trail, and every time that that deer – he bounded every time his feet hit the ground. There's just a big puddle of blood. Um, so it was really coming out. And after 50 yards, I, you know, kind of squatted down, peered ahead and I could see the deer laying up there. Uh, and that, you know, he was, he was done at that point. We walked up to him, um, and got him tagged, took pictures, took video, all that good stuff. And then when we gutted him, you know, this is we let Sam try. Um, this was her first time she wanted to, you know, get some experience, got in the deer. So walked her through that. And then it turns out in the autopsy that 
it actually hit the heart. It basically went right through the right half of the heart on the shot. And so even though in hindsight, knowing he was quartering to a little bit more than I thought he was, I probably would have wanted that arrow to hit maybe like two inches higher and two inches further to the right. And it probably would have taken out the top of the heart and probably would have hit both lungs. Um, but where it ended up hitting ended up being just fine in hindsight because, you know, got the heart and a bunch of those vessels and he was, he was down in seconds. Um, so, you know, we, the frontal shot's kind of a debatable shot. I wouldn't necessarily feel very comfortable taking it out of a tree stand. I wouldn't feel very comfortable taking it out of a, with a longer shot scenario because on a longer shot or just a slower arrow, that deer can really whirl around because they're oftentimes facing you. They know that there's danger on a frontal, you know, type shot or they're, you know, focused your way. And so they can wheel around and turn a really good shot into one that's pretty poor if, you know, they spin around and you hit the shoulder or something like that. So we had a couple of things going for us. He was close. It was on the ground level. So we had a good trajectory right into the chest and it ended up working out just fine. Um, so yeah, couldn't be happier. And it was, you know, where we had these trail cameras back to the beginning of the story, it was like three quarters of a mile, you know, roughly, uh, from where the cameras were for, to where I actually killed them. And I don't know a hundred percent yet. I have some theories. I don't know a hundred percent if where I killed him was actually more of his core area. You know, we saw him pretty early in the day. There was that giant scrape. There was a lot of big buck sign, uh, that was fresh. You know, was that the place that he was actually, you know, really betting most often? And we would just get him occasionally when he would do his, his rounds on those trail cameras. It's definitely a possibility. It's also a possibility that he might've been betting someplace else entirely and that he was only just shifting, uh, to do like a, a rut betting, uh, in this particular location, or that there was maybe a doe in the area. And that's what him and that other buck were actually doing there, that they were just kind of there temporarily on that given day. Uh, I think that we may have been pretty close to where he was betting, but you know, we'll, we'll dive in after the season and, and see what we find. I, I think it's definitely feasible, but we'll, you know, confirm on foot after the, the snow was off and, and we can actually start looking at the sign again. As for right now, Sam and I are basically doing dark to dark out in the woods, trying to get her, um, opportunity to fill her buck tag and shoot her first buck. It's been, uh, Weather-wise, a little bit of a challenge. You know, the, the day after I killed my buck, we got uh, a bunch of rain. And then today, it was just nasty in the afternoon. Rain, sleet, freezing rain. You know, at one point, we had ice on just about everything. And by the time I got close to shooting the light, we ended up just getting up and, and walking out. Because, I mean, Sam's cams had ice caked on them. Her arrow was, had frozen drops of water all over the place. She probably wouldn't be able to, you know shooter bow accurately, even if we did have a shot opportunity, uh, just cause all that caked on ice, the camera was awful of ice. I didn't really, you know, feel comfortable having that thing out in the woods anymore. Uh, and it, it just got windy and yeah, it was, it was pretty nasty. So we, uh, we got back to the truck and we'll, we'll head back out first thing tomorrow morning. I've still got pretty high confidence. I think that, uh, Sam's going to be able to get her opportunity. We have a lot of options available to us. We can set some of those good pinch points we can, you know, move around and cover ground like we did for my deer. That's what we did a little bit today. And yeah, in summary, in this particular instance, it was not the strategy of 
putting in your dark to dark all day sits that killed this buck, even though we had areas that I would have planned on sitting dark to dark in, uh, if Sam and I had decided to actually hunt separately, it was just the fact that we wanted to check out this new area. It was the fact that the weather looked like it was, you know, going to be garbage for the next day and a half, at least, uh, that the, you know, app predictor was saying that the activity was going to jump from average to high in a couple of days, giving us the confidence that, hey, well, we might as well, you know, we probably aren't missing out on much if we do some additional walking around and scouting today. And we had the high winds, which, you know, gave us, it seemed like the opportunity to get by with a little bit more movement. It was all those factors together that kind of played into us actually being more mobile on this particular day and going out and finding the area to set up in that we actually killed this buck in. We had gone, I think, four and a half miles, according to INX, by the time we actually picked that final deadfall to sit down on and do our hunt in. So just to give you guys some perspective. Uh, I'm definitely not against uh, doing the, the dark-to-dark all-day sits, but, you know, this was definitely effective. That spot would be good for, you know, a saddle or a tree stand setup, so we'll keep tabs on it next year and just kind of increase further and further the amount of places that we have that are set up like that, you know, over the years, we'll be able to populate a list of, well, this is the best spot in this area. This is the best spot in this area. This is the best spot in this area. And just keep tabs on them and see if a a big buck is showing up, if the big signs, you know, there. And if it is, then we can hunt kind of that best of the best type of an area. And, you know, of course, always keep in mind the strategy too of, not being afraid to just cover some ground and you might even get an opportunity on the ground, especially if, you know, we got high winds or some other reason why, you know, you might be able to get away with a little bit more movement. Hope you guys enjoyed the story. Uh, check out the video. If it is posted by the time that you guys listen to this podcast, uh, my guess is maybe, but probably not if you're listening to it right away. However, the podcast has been on for a couple of days. The YouTube video is probably up so you can go check it out on my channel. That'll do it for this episode. As always, make sure to follow the Sportsman's Nation on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Leave us a review on iTunes. And if you're looking for additional content, subscribe to DIY Sportsman. And with that, thanks for listening.